0: BFBS Radio 2 Radio Sitrep with Christopher Lee Hello, Vicky Turner, thank you very much and the BFBS newsroom team this is Christopher Lee and you, you are very welcome at the Sitrep round table it's a hot and muggy London town you join us in the next hour, time to sell off Dartmouth, Sandhurst and Cranwell, liars or fools who's hiding the truth about why we went to Iraq Afghanistan after McChrystal are we losing it? Prisoner torture is MI5 being economical with the truth. Spies galore, but who really cares? The Taliban bomb scare stories, or could the terrorists really get a nuclear trigger? What's in Bassett? one year on, why weeping in the streets is scaring the politicians? And, and, what if your hero or heroine is dandruff? Give them the brush off. Who writes this stuff? Anyway... <sighs> There's news that China is about to give Pakistan two nuclear-powered reactors. Pakistan is a nuclear weapons power. According to the United States Institute for Science and International Security, their satellite pictures, or the readings of them, Pakistan is expanding its plutonium and uranium capability. On the line from Washington, the director of the Asia Programme at the Centre for International Policy, Selig Harrison. Why should we not, Selig... Why should we not see this as just a civilian nuclear power deal between China and Pakistan?
1: Well, it's certainly true that uh, Pakistan needs uh, uh, nuclear power for electricity, but the problem is that the uh, political environment in which Islamist forces are growing in Pakistan and are increasingly beyond the reach of the authorities in Pakistan makes this a very risky, risky proposition. We've had repeated attacks on the uh, nuclear facilities in Pakistan at Sargota and Wa in the last couple of years. Um, we have a um, the whole context of the unresolved case of A.Q. Khan. Uh, Pakistan was a, a nuclear Walmart selling stuff to anybody who would pay.
0: And A.Q. Khan uh, was the man who was the agent for this.
1: He was the ringleader of it, but of course he, wasn't, he didn't do it by himself. He was in cahoots with lots of people in the armed forces. Uh, a very interesting uh, book about his case uh, called Deception by uh, Adrian Levy and Catherine Scott Clark included that Khan was quote the fall guy this covert trade in doomsday technology was not the work of one man but the foreign policy of a nation and supervised by Pakistan's ruling military clique and of course the reason that uh, the US CIA and the International Atomic Energy Agency, can't get to Khan to question him about many details of his nuclear transfers, is uh, uh, precisely the fact that many of his collaborators in the military are still serving. Yeah. And,
0: listen, uh, listen I, um, from something that you have been r- r- writing, I got the impression that you believe that um, that he is actually ready to name a few names.
1: I think he is. I've had some people who, who know him very well who've uh, told me that. And uh, uh, that, of course, is a, is a, a dilemma. Uh, the uh, ISI, the Inter Services Intelligence, has got him under wraps in Pakistan. They, they given him a little more personal freedom than he used to have because he's a very popular figure there. But there are many indications that if he were free to, to name names, uh, he would do so.
0: What about the nuclear suppliers group? I mean, they were meeting, was it last week in New Zealand?
1: Last week in New Zealand. I
0: I thought they were supposed to control these deals.
1: They are supposed to control them. The problem is that um, uh, China's been rather coy about this. They haven't really (coughs) uh, gone forward with the deal, even though they've announced that they're going to do it. So, in a formal sense, it hasn't uh, yet come before the nuclear suppliers group. And, of course, China is saying that it should be given an exception from the rule that transfers of this kind aren't acceptable because Pakistan doesn't have what are called full-scope safeguards in which all of its nuclear programs are subject to safeguards. And they're saying that that this uh, is a a special case because, after all, India got treatment last year in which it was given an exception, even though it doesn't have full-scope safeguards. But the trouble is... The uh, analogy doesn't apply because India's had a spotless record in protecting its nuclear technology exports. Uh, It hasn't exported to anybody, in fact, whereas Pakistan ran this nuclear Walmart.
0: Um, Pakistan is often thought to be the key to winning the war in Afghanistan, but it's it's a a constant nuclear weapons threat, isn't it, in the region? So, therefore, we ought to start getting a bit nervous to think this is a global threat also.
1: Well, I don't know that it's a global threat, but I do think that um, it's certainly uh, a very, uh, it's unpredictable in what ways this, well, it could become a global threat in the in the sense that um, the smuggling out of nuclear technology components, missile material from the facilities in Pakistan by Islamist sympathizers there who are undetected is certainly a way in which international terrorism could... Involve a nuclear dimension, which is the nightmare that everybody has. I mean, you know, the, the um, uh, supposedly—I mean, Pakistan has uh, demonstrated to the U.S. authorities that it has good uh, security controls over its nuclear facilities. The problem is that uh, in an, the atmosphere that exists in Pakistan, uh, there are many people who have passed all kinds of security checks who are nu- Islamist sympathizers. We have so many indications that the armed forces, the intelligence agencies, are filled with Islamist sympathizers who may not be traceable to specific groups, but are quite capable of uh, uh, doing the kind of thing that I'm I'm talking about. So I think, you know, it's a dangerous situation to add to Pakistan's nuclear capability. It's already got a lot. And to add uh, more plutonium capability to what is now its uh, uranium-based capability, uh, you know, it's just uh, very dangerous, and the U.S. and other powers in the nuclear suppliers group should be strongly opposing this and taking action, both both China and Pakistan, to stop it. I mean, this this uh, new re- these two new reactors that China is pl- proposing to sell to Pakistan would add 24 nuclear weapons, a- the capability for 24 nuclear weapons a year, to what they've already got, which is 70 to 90. Of course, these are supposed to be Non-military, uh, civilian nuclear facilities, but because of the whole atmosphere in Pakistan, you can't count on that.
0: All right, Celia Harrison. Thank you very much indeed. At well, the sitrep roundtable this week, the former Kremlin foreign policy adviser Alexander Novakov, the BBC's political correspondent, and former United Nations Washington and security correspondent Rob Watson, and the head of the Middle East program at the London think tank Chatham House, Claire Spencer. Um, Rob Watson. Uh, Listening to uh, Zilek Harrison, you either say, look, this is alarmist, or it's logical from what everybody else has been saying over the past 18 months. Well,
2: I don't know anybody that I deal with in the political defence and security fields who isn't worried about Pakistan. In fact, if you think back at some of the arguments that were made by those helping McChrystal to do his review some months back, and I think of one of them, a guy called Stephen Biddle at the... uh, Foreign Policy Council in, in, in the United States. I mean, one of the arguments that he made about why it's worth continuing on in, in Afghanistan is because of fears over Pakistan, which is where most people feel the real problem has moved to in terms of the, the headquarters of Al Qaeda and, and militant Islam. So, you know, is Pakistan the, at the forefront of everybody's security concerns? Well, you bet.
0: Yeah. Um, Claire Spencer, Dr. Claire Spencer. This is one of the misconceptions, isn't it? The public in the United Kingdom, certainly, say, oh, it's Afghanistan. The story is not simply Pakistan for Afghanistan's favour, but when you think of that, you've got China nuclear, India nuclear, Pakistan nuclear, and just up the road, Russia nuclear.
3: Well, I think the British public have been clever about this for for a long time since um, we're just coming up, as you know, to the anniversary, sadly, of the 7-7 bombings in 2005. And, of course, then it became obvious that it was linked to British citizens of Pakistani Bengali descent and had no link whatsoever with Afghanistan, certainly not directly. And I think, certainly in the circles I move, people have often been saying, why are we in Afghanistan when it's clearly if we're talking about al-Qaeda, we're talking about our own national security. Because don't forget, the reason we're there uh, is primarily argued, including by the current government, as we are there for reasons of national British the national streets, interest. The streets
0: of London, sort of thing.
3: I think with more questions being asked, sadly, with the and we've gone beyond that now. The 300th um, victim, uh, certainly on the in the British side, his father asking for you know a specific explanation as to why we're there. I think skepticism is definitely growing. Can, can I just chip in before
2: you get to Alex? I mean, we, you know, we we hear these arguments. And I, and I raise two issues. One is, it's certainly true that the intelligence services believe that the, that the AQ problem is the other side of the border. This is AQ, but AQ then, Khan. Uh, well, no, Al-Qaeda. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but you have to ask yourself, well, sure, we think that the terri- terrorism problem has shifted the other side of the border. But then the argument goes, well, yeah, but if we get out of Afghanistan, who the hell is to say that they wouldn't just say, oh, well, that's nice, it's much easier, we'll just tootle over the border. The other question that all of this raises, I and mean, I think in many ways, this is at the sort of the, the bedrock mm. of it all, this whole you know, nexus of problems around here, and that is which version of the future of Pakistan do you believe? Do you believe the one which is it 's infested with Islamists? who the hell knows how many there are in, in, inside the security services inside the armed forces, as we heard from Selik and there 's plenty of people who believe that. Or or is it, you know, yes, all those things are true, but somehow Pakistan has a middle class? don't worry, the country will hold together, it'll survive, stop fretting so much. Which, of course, is the version the Pakistani diplomats and the ISI would have us
0: believe. And they were giving me lunch the other day, told me exactly that. Um, <laughs> I started um, So we have today yet another announcement that Taliban says, we're not talking to anybody um, because uh, we're winning the war and it's not until all the foreign forces. I checked... We were doing, talking about this wasn't it, in March of last year. They keep, they keep coming out with these announcements. What's new about it?
4: Well, there's nothing new about it apart from the fact that they've been talking behind the scenes with uh, both the British and the Americans. I mean, it might be not of a low level or not the top commanders, but it is clear they're talking. Everybody's talking during the war with their enemies. That's it? what you do, isn't it? Well, that's the whole point of the war, you see. And um, uh, basically, this is no news uh, at all. I think that um, the current situation demands um, to talk to the, to, to the Taliban even more because um, what there's, there's no way out. I yeah. mean, <laughs> it, we, we are stuck. So and, all uh, this stuff
0: today is just uh, a... <clears throat> Rob, how many times have you heard it? Well, I, I've heard it lots of
2: times, but that doesn't you know make it any less interesting because yeah. it, it does raise the, the key issue. Uh, I mean, the Taliban say they're winning. Is that really true? Mm. And would they really not be prepared to do... Some kind of a deal, short of getting absolutely everything they want, returning things back to the way they were in but in August yeah, of 2001. And hang
0: on, what you do, you say that in the week that General Petraeus is confirmed by Congress as the replacement for General McChrystal, you also say it at the end of a month when a hundred and two mm-hmm. uh, service personnel from NATO have been killed, one way or another, the in, in school, Afghanistan. Is it eight years, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is, it is. You know, this is not it's just I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but it's not, not just a bunch of Pashtuns who are saying, oh, all right, give me the AK-47, we're we'll going to beat up on a, on, a, on a police station or something like this. This is very sophisticated thinking, isn't it?
3: Well, can we also ask who, I'm not clear on this, who exactly is running the Taliban and which Taliban we're going to talk to? Because it seems to me, you know, part of the analysis I've heard over recent years is it's, it's split into all sorts of factions with opportunistic leaderships. Uh, declaring themselves Taliban at one minute when it suits and not when it doesn't. So, I mean, can we actually, depending on who we speak to, actually guarantee that they can deliver anything?
0: OK, well, these Pakistanis were saying to me the other night that uh, General Khayyani, the chief of staff in Pakistan, is willing to broker a deal with Taliban.
3: Pakistani oh. Taliban, yeah. not the Afghan Not, not well, Afghan. I think
0: he's
2: talking in particular about the Haqqani network, yes. which is one of the groups... You know, if you th- when we talk about uh, what's happening With in the Afghanistan, allies, we tend to talk about the, uh, the Taliban, but there's the, yeah. the, the Hekmatia people. We all remember him, yeah, He's yeah. really been around forever. Haqqani, who's also been around forever. It's mainly his son that does the fighting. And then there's the, the Taliban, the, the Quetta Shora, the ones who are actually based, mm. as far as we know, in Pakistan.
0: I tell you something that strikes me, that this um, the Obama thing that we start pulling out in 2011... That really was a dumb thing to have come out with that, wasn't
2: it? Well, you know, as my, in my role as a BBC employee, it's not in my habit. Of to course <laughs> it's not. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I don't often get the <laughs> <No>. <laughs> asked to criticise the President of the United States. So, of course, I'm going to answer this in a very BBC-ish way, which is to say, you know, it's not very difficult to find people in either the US or the UK military who don't think that it's massively helpful no. to give deadlines but, but, because, duh.
4: Nobody really knows what it means. No. You know, it can be a no, start of a pullout. Is it, is it a total pullout? Which is pull what out? General is Petraeus
2: was saying. Exactly. Was so sure, but I, guess, but, but I guess, you know, the, the message that, look, let's, let's be depends really straightforward. It his forward. popularity, you, you see. Know, but, but let's be straightforward about this. But, you know, what worries the, the, you know, U.S. and U.K. military about these kind of statements is they tend to think that, the, you know, that the ISI, the Pakistani intelligence and the Taliban and all the other people fighting think... You know, the message they take from it isn't, well, I wonder if they really mean it. Is it does it mean a bit of a drawdown. They think these people, they, you know, they're not going to be here for the long run. Mm. We need to plan our future, which is a future, you know, minus the U.S., minus the U.K. Mm. and all their friends and allies.
0: Claire Spencer, the, um, I've been reading a lot lately and talking to a lot of people about post-McChrystal uh, war effort in, in, in Afghanistan. That's inevitable. But there is a question, isn't there, whether not so much whether things will change, because we don't expect them to change that much, mm. but whether it was going in the right direction anyway.
3: Well, he was supported by Petraeus and, you know, they, they're part of this um, counter-insurgency, um, what do they call themselves, Coenistas or some mm. such term like this, um, the, the ideology, if you like, or approach to this. The problem is if you're trying to win hearts and minds, it doesn't take many mistakes and they have had a number along the way where you've, you know, bombed civilians by mistake. It doesn't take many of those to push the whole uh, philosophy of the thing off track um, it's also the case that they, part of the philosophy is to move in to regions and invest heavily in development and job creation as well as security, so it all happens in tandem. But again, there's a problem with absorption, and we've discussed this before, is what happens to this money if not, you know, it gets filtered off into
0: the other thing. streams.
3: Exactly. It's, it's, you know, small communities like this, uh, we don't exactly have a solid banking system or any form of uh, accountability. Is You know, money just siphons off into the wrong hands and can often be counterproductive if it's not heavily supervised and drip-fed, if you like, into existing systems. It can change the politics of a small region very quickly if money is concentrated in the wrong hands. If if you're
2: interested in the semi-official world from the McChrystal and Petraeus camp, I've I've been in touch with my old contacts who who work along in 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 the military operation there, who say, look we actually think we were on the right track and we will be on the right track but you can't, you, you can't keep doing these reviews before we've actually had a chance to put it into practice mm. and, and what you tend to hear from the people around McChrystal some of whom will be continuing to be around Petraeus is that this, the, the strategy actually needs to be given a bit of time to work and I guess you wouldn't be entirely surprised to hear this they feel that where the, where the letdown has come has, has been on the diplomatic political side you know, and you kind of get that, some of that in the Rolling Stone article, where they feel, well, mm-hmm. who the hell is supposed to be driving this? Is it Mr. Holbrook? Is it Ambassador Eikenbury? Is it the NATO guys? So, militarily, they actually think, okay, you know, Marja wasn't as easy as we thought. But in the months ahead, we are actually going to put some pressure on the Taliban. We're going to put pressure on the Taliban leadership her are not enjoying drone attacks. By all, by all accounts, uh, and you are going to see a bit of a difference, and, and it's, it, we haven't actually yet felt the impact of the uplift in American troops. So, you know, the guys that I speak to, they're not saying, look, don't worry, Rob, you know, in six months' time, the military <laughs> situation, you're not going to believe how good it is. They're not saying that, but they do think, come on, it's, you can't examine how the mm. the plant is growing by picking it up by the roots every five minutes.
0: That's a lovely expression, <laughs> that was the
4: Patras one. Yes, it? it's
2: the Patras yeah. one. I think I slightly mangled it, sorry, mangled roots.
0: Yeah,
4: yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know Petraeus' degree, doctor degree, is on the Vietnam War, yeah. so he is an expert on cut and running. You know, if 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 it needed. So. It's interesting that the, yeah, <laughs> you know,
5: short now, isn't the United States Army one. has
0: been in I mean, Afghanistan longer than yes. in in yeah. uh, Vietnam. Let's go to the other war, the 2003 Iraq War. The Chilcot Inquiry, named after the chairman, Sir John Chilcot was in part set up to inquire into the circumstances of how we went to war, and in particular the legality of the whole thing. It's resumed in London. The Guardian's defence and security editor, Richard Norton Taylor, has been, as ever, watching the inquiry. Um, It's the historical or advice that's never been published, and it's now being published to some extent. What is it about uh, Richard?
6: Well, um, astonishingly, the uh, Cabinet Secretary, Sir Gus O'Donnell, said... um, An unprecedented move, because of the unique case uh, circumstances, as he put it, of the Chilcot Inquiry, he agreed to release a lot of documents, not just one, about the government laws officers, the Attorney General, then Lord Goldsmith's advice to um, the government, and uh, including personal secret messages, memos to Tony Blair about his concerns, Goldsmith's concerns about the legality of an invasion of Iraq. Right. What's,
0: what do we know then that we didn't know or didn't suspect?
6: What I knew because of leaks is that uh, Goldsmith did have concerns, and he said it was uh, it would be dodgy in a, in a March the seventh, two thousand and three, letter to uh, Blair. But then he changed his mind in a short um, um, uh, memo, which was published, an opinion which was published on March the seventeenth, a few days before the invasion. Um, he said it was everything was lawful, and everything okay after all. But uh, these documents now are revealed by the, uh, or declassified by the Cabinet Office and revealed on the um, Iraq Inquiry website, it shows that for months and months, for well over a year, Goldsmith was saying that, that you cannot invade Iraq without a sec- specifically without a second UN resolution, which never came, which Blair was pushing for, but went ahead anyway. One particular note says... Uh, this was written to, um, to Blair by Goldsmith on the 30th of January, 2003, on the eve of a Blair meeting with Bush in the White House. Goldsmith said, look, I still believe, my view remains, we need a second UN resolution, otherwise it'd be unlawful to go to war. Blair says in a scrawled passage in the margin, I don't understand this, I don't understand this. Blair clearly showing expressing his, um, irritation by Goldsmith, you know, his chief, the government's chief law officer, advice that, uh, um, a uh, war would be unlawful in international law
7: without the,
6: a second UN resolution.
0: The Foreign Office lawyers, or certainly Elizabeth Wilmshurst, who resigned, yeah. uh, she told the inquiry, um, I seem to remember, that she thought the way the legal arguments were doctored uh, was lamentable.
6: Yes. I mean, uh, she she had the suspicions that uh, pressure was put on uh, Lord Goldsmith. Uh, many people had the suspicions that uh, why did he suddenly change his... View at the very end, a few, well, a matter of days, really, uh, certainly weeks before the invasion in uh, March 20th, 2003. Indeed, he'd um, flew, had been uh, to- told by Blair that he must fly to Washington to meet uh, Bush administration's lawyers, which he duly did.
0: Get straightened out.
6: Get straightened out, I guess, yeah. And um, it's not only um, um, Elizabeth Wilmshurst, by the way, but the boss, the chief uh, law officer, legal advisor of the Foreign Office, Michael Wood, also said, uh, revealed in the, in the Iraqi inquiry, he did not resign, but he revealed he thought the law, that the war, the invasion, was also unlawful.
0: Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's another side of this. Um, the... The man they're also going to interview is, is Hans Blix, yes. who was basically uh, looking for weapons of mass disappearance, as they turned out to be. Yeah. Um, now, what do we make of that? Why have him in now? I mean, haven't we actually gone through the whole thing?
6: Yeah, I think they want to, they want to nail him. I mean, a lot of people say this is a rather curious inquiry because here you have, um, in a rather kind of comfortable way, very English way or British way, um, the, the witnesses talking and chatting away to the rather, rather soft questions and so on and so forth. They are, they are, I, think it's I think it's a misleading approach. I think there's a lot of hard... Uh, um, questioning going on and hard thinking going on, if not uh, visible and audible, um, but behind the scenes. And then and Chilcott, and certainly one or two of his panel members, notably Sir Roderick Line, the former ambassador to Moscow, former British ambassador, who are asking very pointed questions. And it seems that curiously more, uh, really, as though a lot of people want to re- 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 um, re- re- relieve themselves, really, of, of frustrations which they had. And most of them are former soldiers and former ambassadors. Mm-hmm. And diplomats and so on, who've, who've actually been very remarkably honest, as indeed Lord Goldsmith, the Attorney General, was when he gave evidence. So I think there will be a surprisingly uh, sharp um, report when it comes out, end of this year or beginning of next year, and um, a, a, and much better, I think, than, 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 that's much hard hitting, much more, much clearer than I think a lot of people. Think.
0: Okay, Richard Norton Taylor thank you very much indeed. Uh, Rob Watson when it does come out, all these guys politically are dead and the other guys have retired. Finished of the story eh?
2: Well, I guess to some extent. I mean, of course, it would have been all been slightly different had Labour been re-elected, wouldn't oh, it? Yeah. And that would have been different. You know what I really wanted to ask Richard? I guess we've lost him. Is that I sat through Lord Goldsmith's testimony of was reporting on the Iraq inquiry, and I can't remember, <laughs> despite reporting on it, I can't remember exactly what his reasons were for why he changed his mind. I mean, I know it was something to do them, with it. Uh, it was something. To, well, he did give them, but it was, um, you know, it was something to do with the visits to the United States, and he'd had a, he'd had a careful look at it all again. Mm-hmm. But I guess it couldn't have been very convincing, otherwise I might have remembered it. <laughs> but I guess to, <laughs> to, to get back to your, uh, to get back to your original point, uh, you know, will it, will it make any difference? Well, you know, I, I, I guess part of the point of this inquiry is, you know, think about its origins. You know, the government just had to... The government at the time had to do it because they were under a lot of pressure.
0: But they didn't know. It was Blair's idea, wasn't it? He said, OK, let's do it. Yeah. And then Gordon Brown said, yes, let's expand it. And Blair did not... I mean, this is really... Alexander, is this not the trial of, day, uh, of, of, of Tony Blair? That's what it's all about, isn't it? In, well, I, try, I mean, he got the Peace Prize today, so, you know... It, yeah, it but it's, it actually, it's, a, it's fascinating. <laughs> yes. Tony Blair, yes. Tony Blair, <laughs> our tone, right, has been given $100,000 today, <laughs> a, a prize, and do you know what he's got it for? for creating peace throughout the world. and, his wife, and, thousand and his wife, are dead.
4: And That's his wife Christ. is representing the widows of Afghanistan and Iraq, which, which you is... All, you're joking. I'm it's not right. joking. <laughs> she represents those well, uh, Christopher, groups. A wacky I mean,
0: world?
2: Uh, <laughs> it is a wacky world, of course. It keeps us all going. But, but on, the, on, on the inquiry... Uh, I do remember. I mean, if I, although I said I couldn't remember Lord Goldsmith's justification exactly. You know, the one thing, the, the impression that I came away with was, was certainly that Tony Blair actually did remarkably well in his evidence, I remember mm-hmm. that. I mean, mm-hmm. he, was, he was, you know, was all guns blazing.
0: Well, thanks to but the it, guy that was inter- ter- uh, interrogating at the beginning, Roddy Lyon, the tough guy, but who, it, who, who spent six minutes recapping the whole thing so mm-hmm. Tony Blair could sort of relax and think about his knitting. Sure,
2: but but it struck me that, the, you know, if, if you think back on the broad narrative of what, what's emerged from the Inquiry, I don't mean mm. some of the nitty-gritty that could mm. really, you know... Be, really unseat some people but it was essentially you had a kind of troop of people coming through the supporting cast of Blair saying look think about where we really were you know where the united states is closest ally uh you know it was the context of 9-11 you know would any government really have done anything particularly different you know and you know did we do our best to try and get these americans to bloody well think through you know exactly what you're doing well you know, we say we did. Can and, you know, I, that's the well, narrative. we didn't
3: make the effort for the day after, which we should yes, have done. I think that's that's the most damning yeah, thing. Exactly. I mean, I've heard people saying we didn't actually have to go into the war. What we could have done is, you know, bits. I mean, the French didn't I mean, join in straight Tony, away, but they could have, have prepared the development assistance afterwards. One of,
2: one of my colleagues that I work with as a, as a as a BBC was a BBC uh, bureau chief in Baghdad, and he's been deeply affected by his experience. And when Tony Blair was saying, I think at one point in the testimony who could have foreseen that Iran or Al-Qaeda might have got involved? And at that point, I think I noticed a bit of steam coming from his ears. <laughs> oh,
0: yes, we had that from Andrew North on the <laughs> programme at one point. Can I just... Uh, a quieter moment of this. Um, it's 12 months now since we started seeing scenes from Wotton Bassett, the hearse carrying the remains of of the fallen. and this terrible term, repatriation. Um... I was watching it again this week and I was struck by the, the sincere expressions of t- sadness, you know, five, six deep in that high street. It's a powerful image, isn't it, Robs very, very much still a powerful image.
2: A- absolutely. And um, it is in this country and it is everywhere else that, that it happens. I mean, interestingly, of course, y- you know, one can only talk about these things in, in really broad general terms. I mean, the opinion polls consistently suggest not just in britain but in the other european countries that contribute troops to the isaf mission that you know most people would like to see the troops home sooner rather than later but if you if you look at these sort of follow-up surveys of how you know how big an issue is this for you compared to i don't know the economy or you know the The world you know whatever not not i don't think the world cup has actually been tested (laughs) But it, it's incredible. There was one survey, and I think it was in France or Germany, where they did the follow-up question, how, how big of an issue do you rate this? And, and I think it was, like, the most important issue for less than 1%, mm. even of the, you know, even though you had this huge percentage of people saying we should get out.
0: So it's not such a... I mean, the tears that you see at Wooden Bassett, there's not such a scary thing for the politicians as look, I would imagine it look,
2: to be. You know, it strikes me, looking around all these troop-contributing countries, you know, the places where they're in trouble... Is where you have not just opinion polls suggesting that that most people would like to get the troops out, but it's where you have parliamentary opposition. And and as long as it remains the case in in Britain and the United States that you don't have an organised parliamentary opposition, you don't have one mainstream party saying... You know, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. I, I don't, I mean, it's a concern, of course, for the politicians. That's why they're always making nods, not just in this country and others, to the fact that we don't want to have our troops there for one
0: day longer than they really have to be. And we're not going to do it again anyway, are we, according to all the politicians, in spite well, of Well, they the, always say that. Yeah. Well, we can't uh,
3: afford to do it again. I, I actually think the economic uh, situation may change the compass a bit. You know, as unemployment rises here, I mean, they've made no secret of the fact that over the next few years everyone's going to feel the pain. It's precisely the cost of war that's going to come under scrutiny. And sadly, I think it's going to be the economics of it which will turn the tide in Parliament as they're pressured by their constituents rather than the morality and the ethos and the winnability, if you like, of it.
0: Yeah. We're late. We're late. It is 33 minutes past the hour just coming up. Uh, I'm Christopher Lee. You're listening to SITREP on BFPS Radio 2. Still with me in the studio, Dr. Claire Spencer from Chatham House, the former Kremlin advisor, Alexander Nakrasov, and the BBC's political correspondent, Rob Watson. If you've missed anything, you can catch us by going into com forward slash SITREP and clicking on, guess what? Listen again. Um, Alexander, I have to come to you. What... Oh... Stop laughing! What are we to make? What fine. are we to make of all these alleged Russian spy stories in the United States?
4: Yes, well, we've got the babe, don't we? I mean, uh, or as, the babe, Miss uh, Chapman. Miss Chapman, yes, and um, she may not be. There. They're <coughs> she all May not be. No, they're all alleged. Alleged. Spies. Alleged spies. Right. So for ten years, the FBI was watching them. And then they arrest them two days after. You have such
0: confidence in after the After President
4: Medvedev's uh, visit and yeah. the Hamburger uh, thing. And you th- are saying to me that they don't really know. I, what used, to see, <laughs> I used to see Chapman in Annabelle's.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, she see. Yeah, she was just another sort of Secretary Dolly Bird in, right. in, in Annabelle's. Nobody took any notice of her. Well, of course, it is a bizarre Mind you, the situation. security service couldn't afford it, the membership, so they probably weren't in there waiting outside. Sorry? I mean,
4: it is, a, it is a first, by the way, when we have a group of illegals, is that yeah. called, yeah. who actually knew each other and, and socialized with each other and called each other at night and said, Look,
5: Even I've, from h- Seattle? I've
4: hidden some money in a beer bottle in a park over there. Why don't you go and collect it? And they were
0: it? all out there with their <laughs> shovels digging it up.
4: <laughs> yes, they were. That's how they got This <laughs> got the is a whole bucket of money, <laughs> isn't it? Well, to be honest with you, I think it's the timing that was uh, puzzling there because um, usually when security services arrest a network, yeah. They don't dash immediately to the newspapers and say, well, mm. guys, guys, we've just got 10. Well, t- the, FBI does because <laughs> the, well the, the
0: FBI does because they have to Well, have them no, in an they open They haven't court, had many right? successes, yeah. have they? That's
4: right. no, yeah. But basically what happens is that when, you, when, they, when usually they arrest them, they keep quiet for a while. They sometimes don't even disclose that they have arrested anybody because they need to, you know, find some other people and negotiate and so on. So I think it was more of a making a point rather than scoring a point because uh, there, was a sort of, there was some sort of a signal to the Russians. They got deeply upset because they treat their visits of their president very, very seriously. I mean, he was forced to eat a hamburger. He didn't like it, by the way. The translator said to me he didn't really like it very much and he didn't expect to be invited to a place... Like a hamburger joint. But they had refurbishment <laughs> in the White House. Mm. They're installing a 280 million system of conditioning. Well,
0: hamburger machines?
4: No, no, no. In the, in the White House. Right. In the in this recession, you see, and so they said, "I'm sorry, we can't, you know, invite you to the White House." Tell
0: me, <laughs> when you were doing all this fixing for um, people, troubleshooting, you know, troubleshooting yes, for the that Kremlin, was what I was doing. Did you ever sort of sit there and say, you know, we got some of our, um, we know that some of our guys are illegals or whatever. Are they going to be exposed on this next presidential or prime ministerial office? Did you have to think that sort of thing through?
4: Well, I, I mean, it never happened, actually, in my experience, because uh, when the Russians would, uh, you know, watch somebody and, or arrest somebody, and there would be some high-flying visit or anything. They, 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 you know, because basically what you do, if, if you announce an arrest of a spy network two days after an official visit by the president... And, and the president of Russia and the president of America were hugging each other and saying, that's, it. that's we are a, reset- it, well, it, we are resetting the button again, we're pressing it again and so on. And suddenly it comes out and the president knew, the U.S. president knew about this arrest, coming arrest.
0: Mr. Medvedev didn't know?
4: Well, it seems he didn't. So, I mean, obviously he didn't. His
0: intelligence people are so, not very good So, then.
4: in the Kremlin, the system works like that. What did they mean by that? What's behind that? Who's behind that? The hardliners would walk in and say, Mr. President, we told you so. You can't trust the Americans. They are not reliable. We should switch to China. Yeah. And, and the
0: others would just say, It's just a Cup, coincidence.
4: Yeah. It's just a coincidence. I mean, the, the left wing. you the, take the this seriously. No, no, that's how it happens.
0: Yeah, but do you take it what's happened now seriously? They can't do a tip for well, top. My, my, because my, they're not dips, my
4: suspicion is this this was a network which operated to distract attention from the real people because they look like amateurs come on right Mm. now the system as it works in intelligence in russia is that you have phonies dummies set in to distract the intelligence service to drain their resources while the big boys operate behind the scenes and you know they do their
0: nasty well the smart spy is the one you don't know about yeah
4: of course imagine uh, uh, obviously and obviously the real illegals you know like the the one, Lonsdale, in in, in in Britain, who stole the Polaris missile secrets. You know, they operate alone.
0: Actually, it's interesting, isn't it, that he, it's, it's next year's the anniversary. He was very good, by Penkovsky the way. and, uh, what was the other guy's name, the British man, uh, Greville Wynne meeting mm-hmm. that set up eventually the release of Lonsdale back to, yeah,
4: but, back but to but Moscow. But Lonsdale was a classical illegal, right? Yeah. He operated him on his own. He had one handler and that was it. So what I'm saying is that I feel that this is a dummy network. Who's okay. The and they quote Cyprus, it and, okay. well, basically, the in they know that that they wrong. are a
0: dummy yeah, network. They can't science even science charge them link. with spying. <laughs> he just happened to be there, didn't he?
3: Well, he was part of this network. Why Supposedly, he was Cyprus. number 11.
0: Listen, I want to ask you just a bit further, eastern Cyprus, the Lebanese have arrested a guy spying for Israel, and they say for more than 15 years. There's a lot of that going on, isn't there, at the moment?
3: Yes, I don't know why there's usually some political reason or other for this coming out, you know, to distract attention from various things, but I would have thought um, it could also be part of the pressure being piled on to Israel relating to this wonderful new flotilla. I'm not quite sure when it's setting off, but it's this all-female... Flotilla with the pop singer Haifa on board that have got the Israelis in a bit of a panic. They're having to train up an all female, uh, well, they have female soldiers already, but obviously, um, in specialized training for boarding the ship. So this is
0: bizarre, isn't it? They
3: can have an all female punch up on yeah. board or, or whatever they're intending this time Rather around. Wrestling. Mm. Um, but I suspect, I mean, there are so many, there's 70 yeah. odd, aren't there, of these, uh, lebanese spies for israel i think some of it may also be related to the leftover from the southern lebanese army don't forget they were all mm. in cahoots with the israelis it's it's a complicated place lebanon so you never quite know
0: okay um i want to talk about torture uh, prime minister david cameron's agreed the terms of a judge led inquiry into claims that british agents were complicit in the torture of terror suspects on the line, the London Director of Human Rights Watch, Tom Porteous. Um, Tom, why isn't there an existing and trustworthy Whitehall system for determining the truth of, about MI5 or MI6 involvement in something like this?
7: Well, I suppose it's because the Intelligence and Security Committee, which is supposed to oversee the intelligence services, is, is not accountable to Parliament, like the Foreign Affairs Committee and other select committees. It's appointed by uh, the Prime Minister, it reports to the Prime Minister, its proceedings are uh, secret uh, and the results of its investigations are not published by and large. Um, Just to give you an example, last year uh, Human Rights Watch was asked to give evidence on this very issue of UK complicity and torture to the Foreign Affairs Committee and to another parliamentary committee, the Joint Committee on Human Rights, uh, both of which had decided to launch their own inquiries. and uh, those inquiries were fully transparent uh, and they concluded as a result of those inquiries that the government had serious questions to answer earlier this year the chair of the intelligence uh, the, and security committee said that it had conducted its own investigations and that he was satisfied that you know the intelligence service had done nothing wrong uh yet nothing of those investigations were, were was made public uh, and public and and the and the isc didn't um Asked to see the evidence that we and others had amassed, and we have really no idea how it squared its conclusion that the services had done nothing wrong with the large body of evidence uh, that, in fact, they had got involved in torture. Do
0: you know, MI5 has always denied involvement in this. I mean, it may do, as I think the former Home Secretary said, um, supply a list of questions to uh, the Pakistani intelligence people, ISI. But then it backs off. Um, is MI5, what, economical with the truth?
7: Well, yeah, it's true that, that MI5 has denied in, in involvement, and yet one of their agents is actually now being investigated um, by the police because of evidence that did emerge in, in court in the Binyam Mohammed affair that um, that this agent was involved in Binyam Mohammed's torture. This is the guy who... Um, was uh, tortured, allegedly tortured in Pakistan and in Morocco and ended up in Guantanamo Bay. Um, but, you know, I mean, look at what well, MI6, in fact, have themselves asked for a criminal investigation into the possibility that one of their agents may have been complici- complicit in torture. So at least they're sort of open to the fact that, uh, you know, that there's a possibility that, uh, that their agents may, may have become involved in torture.
0: There's a fine balance, isn't there, for, in some people's minds between saying, look, this is bad news, this is not human rights, etc. And the other group that says, well, hang on, there is a war against terrorism, and the sort of people that we might be picking up are people who are either willing or even have been involved in the killing of other people.
7: Look, I mean, the allegations in most of these cases are actually quite serious. They are allegations that these suspected terrorists, yes, suspected terrorists, were arrested, uh, for example, by the Pakistani uh, security services at the request of the United Kingdom government, that they were then questioned by the Pakistani security services under torture following questions provided by uh, the UK intelligence services. The answers would then be relayed back to the UK intelligence services. There's no getting around the fact that this behavior you know, would amount to complicity in torture, a sort of outsourcing of torture to abusive intelligence services like the Pakistanis. And our point is not only that this is really wrong and illegal, but it's also counterproductive. Because even if such abuse does sometimes provide you with, you know, good intelligence, and, you know, the jury is really out on that, what is is not in doubt is that this kind of behavior, when it comes out, as inevitably it does, Acts as a recruiting sergeant for terrorism, it triggers radicalization, and it undermines the moral legitimacy of our fight against extremism.
0: You don't have to go back too far, do you, to the Northern Ireland experience of British troops and the RUC and the interrogators there, to remember that after a similar inquiry, some of these techniques were banned, and therefore we have a code, if you like, that we should be following and acknowledging e- even now.
7: That's right. I mean, it, it's, it's surprising, I think, that um, in, in spite of the uh, experience and the lessons that were definitely learned by uh, the UK security services in Northern Ireland as a result of very serious mistakes that they made in the fight against IRA terrorism, it's, it's surprising that, you know, after 9-11, it seems that all that was forgotten. And um, I think that, you know, um, the problem was, of course, that 9-11 was a huge shock to the international system and to uh, the security agencies in particular. Um, and uh, they kind of forgot how you deal with terrorism. And the b- best way to deal with, with terrorism is to deal with uh, terrorism through the criminal justice system, to do it properly and to use legal methods. That right. is the best way to, to tackle it.
0: Tom Porteous of Human Rights Watch, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Alexander, all's fair in war? Well,
4: uh, you know, it's a difficult question here because, you know, I was trained as a military cadet to to interrogate American prisoners of war, and I was always told that um, don't beat them, become a friend. It's better. They'll tell you more and they'll be honest with you.
0: Whereas if you beat them, they'll tell
7: you what they they think you want to hear.
4: Yeah, they'll start to tell you what you want to hear. And basically, you know, the, the, the... the s- system that has been developed over the years You don't really need to re- use violence to get what you want You know, there are certain ways of doing it, so in other ways So I don't really understand what, what you know how it happens in this particular way And I also don't see how the British intelligence is sort of being uh, taken to the cleaners Because they might have known that somebody is being beaten up somewhere else robin To be, bit you know
2: i mean i guess if, if if mi5 if someone from mi5 were sitting here I, I could tell you exactly what they would say in response to tom's points uh, and that is they would make the point that you can't choose the intelligence services that you have to deal with and i think they would want to make the very specific point that they that the mi5 and mi6 are absolutely laden with lawyers who whenever the agent says have to operate in other countries will tell agents, you know, we don't, the British government doesn't approve of this, Mm -hmm. doesn't do this, doesn't do that, doesn't do this. But that, but that, you know, an awful lot of people aren't being, as they would say, particularly real about this. I mean, we have to work, they would say, with the Pakistani intelligence services and with other foreign intelligence services. You know, we can encourage them to try and do things our way. But but can you imagine it the other way around? The Pakistanis calling us and saying, you know, you've got one of yours in our, in our prisons. Give them a bloody good kicking.
0: One of the guys down at Ashes once said to me, put the pliers away, leave the toenails alone. We'll get on with it. <laughs> um, listen, let's talk about uh, – uh, I want to go a couple of things to the Middle East, uh, Claire. Turkey's getting to grips with Israel a- again, isn't it? I mean, how is, – is this just a- – Thing, uh, thing they have to go through, the motions, they've banned an uh, uh, um, Israeli military flight. Is that important? Should we worry about it?
3: Well, I think they've, they're playing quite a, an intelligent game because, you know, given domestic pressures and also regional pressures over this, they could well have broken off diplomatic relations or done something more robust. They have been very vocal about what happened at the end of May and the loss of civilian lives. Um, but it's also, I think, that the, what they're doing is getting on with business as usual. You know, they have certain concerns over the way uh, pressure is being applied to Iran. Don't forget, for the first time, they actually voted against the next round of UN sanctions against Iran that they disagreed with. And Turkey hasn't normally, uh, as a member of the UNSC, hasn't really stepped out of line on this before. And Especially
0: as a NATO member and somebody who as wants a NATO to join member, the EU. Well,
3: of course, then you get the reactions from the the other side, a number of American analysts saying, that's it, Turkey's left the Western camp, you know, that's it, they're they're anti-Israel. No, it's more intelligent than that. I think Turkey's realised the players that gain the most in the Middle East are the ones who maintain lines of contact open with everyone, including the Israelis, and they're perfectly within their rights to condition the relations with the Israelis and say, listen, you know, um, the basis of our cooperation has changed somewhat. It may change back, but nothing is... Uh, prefaced by preconditions, or definite, or that's the end of it. I'm not speaking to you mm. anymore. And they're playing, as I say, a partly economic. There's quite a lot of speculation as to how much of it is ideological, and you know whether there's a sort of Islamist shift. No, I see them as a as a mercantile nation. In fact, at Chatham House this morning, we had the Minister of Finance talking. Very lucid. You know, it's very clear that he's in he's completely in the realm of the emerging markets debate, and that's the business they're in. They're very well aware that they are. An expanding market; they have people to employ. They're dealing with the death throes of the PKK, which have been a recent distraction, but you know, more or less they have that under yeah. control. Um, and I think probably, interestingly, the way they're dealing with the Israelis is: look, we've got other things to do, you know. But you're not flying over us, and you know, we're not, it's, we're not open for business with you. We're, we're busy doing other things, which is probably more insulting to the Israelis than a huge diplomatic storm.
0: Yeah, Rob, it, it, it's interesting this, this idea of dealing with the emerging markets. Which is exactly what um, Foreign Secretary uh, Mr. Hague was talking about to the Heritage Foundation in Washington, which is a bit right-wing, isn't it? The Heritage Foundation. It is. Sort of. But he was saying, listen, we got to we got to deal with merging countries and Latin American countries, etc. It makes sense, but it's always made sense. I thought that was our foreign policy anyway. Uh, absolutely, which
2: is the kind of response you've heard from analysts, which is, well, yeah, shouldn't we have always be doing that? And in any case, it's much more complicated to, to do it than it used to be. You can't just kind of call up the foreign minister of emerging country X and say, let's do plenty of business. It's all a bit more subtle and, and sophisticated these days. But, but I do think that this talk of... Um, you know, somehow what Mr. Hague has announced as some post-American era foreign policy is probably, uh, probably over-egging it a bit. I mean, it it, of course, it makes sense. If, if you think about it, if we're, if we're in the process of trying to change gears economically in Britain and to have more private sector jobs, uh, and we think that the Americans aren't going to be providing the engine of growth that they that they have done the last 20, 30, 40 years, well, then, duh, you're going to need to stel- sell your
0: stuff to some other places. Yeah. But it's very important for people to understand this. I'm thinking of somebody joining the army today or wherever. Um, it's the sort of thing that you can't just bin, can you, a speech like this, because fundamentally, if you look at the Strategic Defence Review, for example, uh, they're talking about the out years, 30 to 40 years' time, and how it's based on foreign policy because military is the muscle of it. This is why, Claire, you cannot ignore what something like Haig says, even if you think, well, I've heard it before.
3: Yes, but you're asking what are the implications yeah. over that period of time for the armed forces? Yeah. Um... Well, it's difficult to say. We started off by, by saying we're not going to do more Afghanistans or Iraq. So what does that mean? We're going back to the philosophy of the 1990s, which is peacekeeping missions, um, smart interventions, a la Sierra Leone. I think what really ought to come out of this uh, SDR is a review of what part the armed forces play in foreign policy rather than it being a sort of MOD led. That's why I've always argued for the security side of this, that it's it should be a complete review of what we mean by the national interest, which I think some of our discussion has shown has been mm. misused in the past, uh, and have a wider discussion about what are the instruments we have, aid, trade, all of these are deployed very in a very disparate fashion. I've just written on the Middle East since we started off on the Middle East to say that, you know, while countries like Turkey are intelligently getting on with trade and business relations. We are still pouring out a dead weight of aid to the Palestinians just to keep them alive. Now, how long, given the state of our economy, and this is the Europeans in general, is this kind of approach sustainable? Should we not be using that money more effectively and deploy it in a way which favours both uh, business opportunities? And I'm not talking along Tony Blair's lines necessarily. We need a political settlement first. But use the whole whole gamut of our resources to be productive both for the Palestinians and the UK and it's this joined up thinking which I worry the SDR will not approach and it will not look at the role of the armed forces in the whole in this way, it will look at it entirely in budgetary terms.
0: Okay, there's some budgetary terms uh, the SDR Uh, on the line, Professor Eric Grove who apart from running the Centre for War Studies etc at the University of Salford once taught at Dartmouth now, when we get to the SDR, uh, Eric, Why shouldn't we be sensible and just bin Dartmouth, Sandhurst, Cranwell, etc., and have one joined up? officer training establishment perhaps in uh, i don't know milton keynes
5: well it's been suggested before i mean when i first went to dartmouth back in 1970 uh, all the well all the lecturers there or most of them had been expecting to be going to live in the area of shrivenham where they were going to build a, a new entry college for all three of the armed services and uh, uh, in the context of the then relatively new ministry of defense and it all turned out to be too expensive And I can't help feeling that actually, uh, I'm sure the three armed forces will argue very strongly that in fact this whole thing would be too expensive, building a new site, or I don't think any of them would like to go to the others, if you see what I mean. And this, I think, goes to the heart of why the service colleges, I think, are relatively safe in that they provide the sort of ethos of the armed services at the lowest level. People join as naval officers, RAF officers, army officers, and then they go into joint situations with that single service ethos. And that compromise has worked... Pretty well, I think. If you go too far down the sort of uh, sludgy amalgam route, uh, then I think you end up like like the Canadians did a few years ago, and that's not a very good thing.
0: You think that, um, for example, somewhere like the Defence Training College, um, which incidentally last year Vince Cable promised to axe but is still going, you think something like that doesn't work?
5: Well, I think I think you see it works. People going to the Defence Training College have already been inducted into their armed services. They go there as members of the armed services. You no, know, a rating will have been to rally or whatever, and therefore they go there and they learn their trades, their technical trades in a joint way, and that seems to be a sensible way of going forward. Of course, as numbers come down for all three of the services, the logic of trying to come up with some common sort of institution uh, uh, may may well get stronger. But you're talking here about something something very basic the so-called ethos of the armed services and that, I think, is something that each of the services is going to want to hang on to. The Navy, actually, are probably less worried about officer training straight being separate from rating uh, than the others. There have been numerous um, comments about, about uh, Raleigh and Dartmouth joining, but um, nothing came of them.
0: Oh, dear, yes. I remember you were there when they scrapped and Hang on. You don't go – what do you, you three reckon? I mean, would it be awful to get rid of Sanders and Dartmouth and Cranwell? We don't really need them do we? Just offices, that's all we need Well no? I, I'm,
2: I'm going to reveal myself here as a, as a as a small C conservative by and large, I just I, ca- I can't stand change, you know, whether it's in my house in my garden, mm. at the allotment so...
0: Uh, so yeah. I'm
2: sorry. Don't turn to me for revolution.
0: Yeah, come on.
3: Well, don't they amalgamate them at Shrivenham anyway? Afterwards, in other words, they do their single service. Send them you know, all off to university. Bring them
0: back. Give them well, a two-week course somewhere. Well, off to
3: university anyway, and you know this is the complete of the waste of
0: money. That's what we say. Alexander, would you say that's a waste of money? Well, it probably is. Actually, you know,
4: you need a month to train them, but uh, there is a certain sort of old-school Thai thing, and they know each other afterwards, and. Uh, mm. Well, you know, the military, when you say that uh, the military is the muscle behind foreign affairs, usually the military pay for the mistakes of the politicians. <laughs> okay. that's, that's how it Listen,
0: talking so. of paying okay. something, I mean, we haven't got uh, much time now, but telling something, a lock of hair from Napoleon Bonaparte, he wasn't on, our, wasn't on our side, was he? A lock of hair from Napoleon Bonaparte is sold for more than £8,600 at an auction in New Zealand. I simply want to know, uh, if you had to get a lock of hair, I mean, I'm mean, i not suggesting pay eight grand, but... Who would it be from? It is a disgusting thought. Where does oh. it come
4: from? I mean, come it comes on, from you me. know. Answer, answer it. No, no. I mean the hair. <laughs> oh, I okay. thought of it
3: I thought thought of someone.
5: Lord Byron.
0: Oh,
3: you're oh. romantic, there, I aren't am, you? Yeah.
5: I Eric? Say Nelson. He won.
0: <laughs> well, everybody's got a lock of Nelson's hair. I've even got a lock of, <laughs> lock of <laughs> Nelson's hair. Well, sell
5: Tell me yours then, Chris.
0: <laughs> I will sell you yours. Eight thousand six hundred or thirteen thousand US dollars. Um, Alexander, quick how would you who would you who who would you take as a lockers leo tolstoy yes oh he's a relation it wasn't an ancestor of yours
4: yes yes he was my my great great
0: how many programs have leo tolstoy's what your great great? programs
3: so you
0: can just cut a lock of your own hair yeah come on you can flog it abraham lincoln lincoln why
2: he's just one of my all-time heroes i mean having lived in america for so long i i'm I can't think of many well, people what, what, in history what that I admire. Mean what do you do with
4: it? Sell it or what?
2: Well, he asked me, really? I, do,
4: I don't want a I don't mind him, but he asked
2: it. me if you had to <laughs> have one, <laughs> what would you go for?
0: i got it, mine them the lock it, but <laughs> Oh, It's supposed to be Nelson was my great grandmother's. There right. you are. Yeah, right. Isn't well, you well, going, same, going same, shortly? Same, same. But it's just
5: <laughs> in case there's mercury in it, because that's the way <laughs> you're supposed to have died, isn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, mercury. Yeah. Well, I'd better keep it. But the other thing is, what happens if you had dandruff, Eric?
5: Well, I don't know. Well, it would slightly. Uh, well, I suppose a lot of people had dandruff in those days. It, uh, it just wasn't in the in the paintings.
0: Right. Well, if you had any hair, I'd have a lot of yours, Eric. <laughs> Listen, we are going there. Uh, um, that's it for this week. Um, my thanks to Eric Grove, Alexander Lukasov, Rob Watson, and Claire Spencer. Um, by the by, next Thursday will be the last sit round table as you know it. A new shorter version starts on. July the 15th, so next week we'll be doing a grand and global tour of the big issues that touch you wherever you serve or might do. We'll also be looking to the future, to the issues and even the possibility of operations not yet on the state boards, from peacekeeping to the ultimate confrontation, mushroom clouds. So join us then for the final Sit Rep table, four o'clock UK time. Until then, from me, Christopher Lee, until next week, goodbye, and Mary, Mary's in the hut.
3: with Christopher Lee.